Our scripture reading for this morning is from 1 John chapter 5, the first six verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of the Lord. We've been going through John's Gospel, marinating in it and savoring it and taking weeks to go through it. And um, as I've mentioned before, he goes, he's, he's repetitive in the way that he writes, but he's not feebly repeating himself. In the same way that light goes through a prism and cascades different colors, the Apostle is writing and cascading the implications of the Gospel in many different ways. And right here in this particular passage, He's saying that our love for our brothers and sisters is put in the context of a world that is in constant trial and constant leaving us as humans in a constant condition of either being overcome or overcoming. And so this morning as we look at this, I just want to focus on a particular phrase that he uses here. And it's the phrase, born of God. And I want us to think about the implications of what that actually means. Um, I'm not going to be taking a lot of time to unpack the conversation here around love because we did that last week. If you're new to Redeemer, you're exploring Christian faith with us, if you go on our website, we have a teaching archive there and all the teachings are there in order as we've been working through the book. And so I hope that would be encouraging and sharpening for you. Uh, But for our purposes this morning, we're just going to look at this phrase, born of God. And I want us to consider uh, a few things. Here's the first one. Being born of God, we grow in love and a desire for unity. Secondly, being born of God, we're changed through the reordering of our loves. And lastly, being born of God, come what may, we will overcome. So first, being born of God, we grow in love and a desire for unity. He uses the word born of God in the Greek, it's geneo. And geneo could also be translated offspring. So he says, we're the offspring of God. And he uses that language intentionally because it invites us to think about two things if we're all offspring in this room together here. Resemblance and relationship. Resemblance to our Father and in relationship to each other. So it's a really strong theme for John at the end of his letter. He seems to be saying, love each other, love each other, love each other. At the end of Jesus' life, look at what Jesus was teaching. Love each other, love each other, love each other. Why is this? If we are the ganao of God, then there's a resemblance... As brothers and sisters, we should be increasingly resembling our Father, but also a love and a a real desire for unity for the other people sitting in the chairs next to us, week in and week out at Redeemer. This is something that is important and central because of the power of our union with Christ in our faith. The reality is that we have more in common with a Christian on the side of a mountain in Latin America than we do with people in our office who share our political leanings and our ideologies on, you know, five or ten different sort of cultural conversations and our tax bracket and our Netflix algorithms. We have more in common 
with a believer meeting this morning somewhere in the world underground in some simple little church because their lives are threatened. We have more in common with them. That's the power of being children of God, of being born of God. It means that there is a there should be a deep desire for unity. And many of us have experienced this when you're traveling or you're off someplace, you know, not even other countries. You can be in the city off someplace and chatting up with someone you've never met before. You discover they're a believer. You discover they share your faith. And immediately there's this affinity there. Wow, I just met a brother or a sister. That's so great. And there's this common bond. Being born of God, God were to grow in love, grow in this desire, this unity for the others in, in, in the seats around us. So that coming to church isn't being a part of this nebulous organization called KW Redeemer, you know. But that we're like, no, the relationships here matter in a really deep way. Um, in verses 1 and 2, he's reiterating the, you know, the evidence of this love, the evidence of loving God. It's the cause and effect. You know, James, there's a famous passage in James which says, faith without works is dead. This is John's version, theologically, of that. It's John's way of saying there's a cause and effect in the work of the Spirit. And so, you know, he's, uh, he's old, but he's not being repetitive because he's getting senile. He's old and he's getting repetitive because he's reiterating what's of most importance. And many of us know people who, as they, as they uh, get on in age... The only things that really matter to them are the things of like absolute utmost importance. And the things that really were a big deal and mattered when they were 20 suddenly are not relevant. The things that really mattered in their 30s and 40s, who cares? When they, when they, that's why, that's why it's like when, when you, um, you know, we're, we're not there yet as, as, as parents, but maybe whether you're a, if you're a single person and you go to your grandparents' house and, uh, you know, you bang on the counter with a fork and your grandparents go, Oh, that's so cute. And, you're, and then uh, your parents are like, what? That was not my experience growing up in this home. It's because all of a sudden later in age, you're like, ah. They etched their name in the table, whatever. I'll just remember them every time they're not here. It's fine. All of a sudden, things change. And so he uses this language, show me the love that you have for each other. The love and the unity in the church. Uh, it's this, it's the, uh, a powerful image of what's growing here. It's appropriate, actually, that we meet in a gym for purposes of illustrating this text because the church, for John, is like a gymnasium where you work things out. You work things out, and things get worked in. It's a gymnasium of the soul. It's a, it's a means of grace that God has given. He's given us His Word, He's given us His Spirit, and He's given us this community. And to the degree that you are engaged in this community, you can grow. And to the degree that you are disengaged with this community, you will not, spiritually speaking, grow. I'm not, I'm not presenting that as some sort of a new idea. That's just a repetitive idea throughout all of the New Testament epistles, is that this is how we sort of work out our salvation with our brothers and our sisters. And so there's this love, this unity that keeps calling them for. It's also appropriate, not only that we meet in a gymnasium for this sort of this image of, of, uh, of working out our uh, our uh, salvation in our faith, but also that there's a scoreboard up here that's dead and has never been lit up and will never be lit up. We're, we're coming into church and that scoreboard is always dead because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the end of religious scorekeeping. None of us are saved on the basis of the good and loving life that we're living. None of you are saved on the basis of how much you care and sacrifice and give 
of your time and of your life and of your energy to the people sitting in the seats next to you. Praise God. That none of us are being saved. The, the scoreboard, the, the, Christ at his cross settled the score. He lived the perfectly loving life that we can't. And he laid his life down and he died for his brothers and sisters, that got, for, for his family, in a way that you and I never will. And yet, though, this calls us into this sort of a life, this beautiful life of, of love and of care. So being born of God, it invites us into humility. Humility because, because quite often who you're born and your family and your heritage is something that we can get quite proud of. And there's an appropriate way for us to be very proud, if I could use that in an appropriate sense, that we're children of God. To be very excited about that, thrilled about it. We all have different family you know, histories and heritages and traditions and customs and things. And that We can take a lot of pride in that in a good way. But you can also be, see yourself as a child of God and then go into the city, into work or your campus, or relate to other people in a way that is not healthy and not good like the Pharisees did. The Pharisees would have said, oh yes, we're born of God, we're the offspring of God, we're the children of God. But their prayers sounded like this. I praise God, I'm not like that person. So you see, for us to understand what it is to be born of God and to love each other in this room, and then of course have that spill out into the office and the school campus, it's humility. The tone is not, thank God I'm not like them, but rather, thank God that by his indwelling spirit, I'm not like the old me. And this is the purpose of being, seeing ourselves as being born of God. Let's move on to the second thing. So, being born of God, we grow in love and desire for unity with each other. Secondly, being born of God, we're changed through the reordering of our loves. Verse 5 says, For this is the love of God, that we would obey commandments. If you just look at that, and strike your ear in a way that's not that attractive. This is the purpose of the love of God. Obeying commandments. If we just kind of immediately read that and go, what? Is this like a divine guilt trip? If you love me, you'll do the dishes. Is that what's going on here? That's not what's going on here at all. It's actually quite profound. We love God. This is the love of God, that we love him, we keep his commandments. In other words, we've been, God saved us not for no apparent reason. We were saved for something. And the, and the being saved for the obedience of his commands is being saved for a life of true freedom, true flourishing, True joy in the soul. The purpose of this entire letter, which I've been saying for weeks, is he, is he wants the children of God to have joy in a world that sucks out your joy. So the means of true joy, when the world is burning, is to be living a life of flourishing in union with the one who loves and cares for our souls, our Father in heaven. So this looks like this obedience uh, of, his, of his commands. It's a way of flourishing. For example, the, to keep the commands, the keep in the Greek could also be translated to practice, or to keep on keeping the commands, to practice. Poiamen. And, and so the poiamen of the commands is like muscle memory. So Nigel plays baseball, I take Nigel to the, the diamond every week, I have a pitching machine, Nigel's at the plate, batting practice. Fire the pitches in, one after the next, after the next, after the next, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, over and over, all every week, because it's about muscle memory. It's about practicing. Not practicing because the boy hates it. Practicing because he enjoys it. And anything in your life that is worth doing, that it, if it's going to bring you any sort of joy, it's going to require this ongoing commitment of practice. And the ongoing commitment of practice actually increases your joy. 
If I say, hey, no, I just want to play baseball. He goes, yeah, I want to play baseball. And I say, do you want to go to batting practice? And he says, no, thanks. His joy during the game, when those pitches come in, is not going to be a tremendous amount of joy. Practice actually leads to joy. The commands of God actually leads to flourishing. It leads to joy. So God is not a restrictor by nature. He is a fulfiller. And even in the ways in which the wise commandments of his words are incongruent with our most natural inclinations or ideologies that seems to be, you know, incompatible with the culture, we align ourselves to the wisdom of God's word. We align ourselves to the wisdom of God's way because in keeping it, this is not only uh, the way in which we, uh, it proves the outworking of our love of God because we want to, but it leads us into this, this uh, life of absolute flourishing. It's like a muscle memory of the soul. There's a formation and a liturgy to the way in which we live. The reformers said it this way um, in, the, in the 1500s. They would say, we're saved by faith alone, but that faith doesn't stay alone. It leads into this, this beautiful life of the grace that rescues us also does reform. And that's why John in other letters uses the, the image of a vine and a branch. Something's happening. There's a life flow in you. Something's going on. Your loves are being reordered. It's not just roll up your sleeves and try harder. Something in you wants this now. There's a fundamental change by the power of uh, the Spirit. So it's not a divine guilt trip, like saying, if you love me, you know, you'll do the dishes. It's rather that if you love somebody, you're willing to go to great lengths for them precisely because of the love. It's a cause and effect. It's that the gospel went into my heart. It's doing renewal in my heart and my head. It's coming out my hands. It's inevitable. My guilt has been met by God's grace and it's coming out my hands now in a life of gratitude. And the context here is the people sitting around you, getting into their lives, getting to know each other. You can't know a hundred people. So the expectation is not that, okay, Redeemer, you you know, be close and intimate friends with a hundred people. Impossible. We can be friendly and caring and we can um, get to know a hundred of the hundred people in here. We can do that. But we're probably only going to have enough bandwidth for four or five people here somewhere. So whether it's through community groups or otherwise, to truly give of ourselves and to serve and to care. Or we become aware of another need and we say, you know, I can meet that need. That it, it comes out through our hands. The cause and effect of the gospel. It goes on to say in verse 3 that this, all this, you know, walking out the commands that I'm talking about are not burdensome. So it's not like this just big, massive homework exercise that none of us really want to do. What it actually means is this is, by the power of the Spirit, this is what we want to do. As you continue to read God's Word over and over and kind of go through it, the Old Testament, to see how He moved through millennia, through dysfunctional people, and despite their sin, kept moving in grace, the prophecies that one would come, the wisdom literature, the the language of the Psalms, emotive prayers that enable us to come to God with all of our brutal honesty, you just read through that, the New Testament, what it's doing in the church. As we just kind of read through it, there's renewal that over time happens. And we're like, you know, this is what I want. The power of the Spirit and the Word working together and accomplishing that purpose. It says that the command is not burdensome. You could also translate it, it is not oppressive. The word is baraleia. And baraleia is the same word Jesus used when Jesus said, Take on my yoke. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus said... My burden is not oppressive. The significance of this is that we are all linked to something and someone. Maybe you're here exploring Christian faith and you're like, yeah, see, this is where the Christians lose me. Because it's like, well, religion is oppressive. And I mean, no doubt you can make arguments 
in 30 seconds of how religion has oppressed people. You can make arguments in 30 seconds of how the church, Christian church has oppressed people, Christian preachers have oppressed people. Easy. That's like hitting a pinata. But what you will not find is in the life of Jesus Christ, Jesus oppressing people. Jesus oppressing women. Jesus oppressing slaves. Jesus opp- You're not going to find it. Even if you say, ah, oh, yes, but there's these crazy laws in the Old Testament. My friend, read the whole thing. If you just pull off a little verse like a fridge magnet and go, hey, here's a verse about slavery. God loves slavery. When you read the whole context, God has divided his people out from all of the other neighboring nations. And you don't take those ancient laws that are thousands of years old and compare them to the modern law. You take that ancient law and look at the other competing religious laws. And what becomes extremely apparent is God is actually separating and extending a scandalous amount of forgiveness and grace and care for the victims of injustice in the Old Testament that you are not going to find in any of the other competing religions, I promise you. So, when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, it is not oppressive. When John says here, the commands of God are not oppressive. The law and the wisdom of God is not oppressive. What is being said here? is that this is the pathway to true freedom. And so for those of you who are like, yeah, but this is the part that loses me because I don't want to be yoked to anything. I I want to live a yoke-free life. I don't want to be bound to uh, Jesus. I don't want to be bound to a church. I don't want to be a member anywhere. I just want to kind of float in and float out and be like, yo, I love the preaching of Jesus 50 feet away, but stay out of my life. You want to live this sort of yoke-free life. The truth is nobody has a yoke-free life. Everybody's bound. The, the image of the yoke is that two, two, two animals, two are bound together as one, going through life together. Bound together. So Jesus says, bind yourself to me. Bind yourself to me. And it is not oppressive. It's freedom and liberating. Bind yourself to me. And maybe you're hearing you say, but I'm agnostic, and this doesn't make any sense to me because I could just keep God and religion and Jesus out of my life and just live a very free, yoke-free life. My friend... My friend, you're, you're waking up every day and you've decided something is the most important thing in the world. And that's what you've yoked yourself to. Like that's your, so what is it? It's my relationships, it's my friends, it's my romance, it's my job, it's my career, it's my education, it's my money, it's the house I live, it's the car I drive, it's the, it's the health and the fatality of my body, it's, it's being known as a loving and generous person in the city, it's being well known in my field. It's like, it can be a million things, but that's your yoke, that's what you've bound yourself to. And the next question is, what is the teleology of humanity? Where are we all going? See, Christians have this habit of gathering together on Sunday mornings and always remembering death. Not because we're dark and morbid, but because we can stare death in the face and not be intimidated by it because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The significance of that is because then everything that we are doing, from planting gardens to playing frisbee to going to work to going to school to baseball practice to ecological responsibility to doing art and music, all of it is not an exercise in futility that gets wiped out when the sun burns out. Suddenly, all of it has this glorious relevance eternally because death is not the end for us. So you see, nobody's living a yoke-free life. You can say, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe in God. Preacher, I think what you're saying is ridiculous. I'm just going to be a good person in the city, live a good life, and leave the world better than it was when I left it. And I want to just challenge you, my friend, to say that that might give subjective meaning to you now. 
but that has no objective meaning in the world at all. Subjectively meaningful for you, yes. Objectively meaning, absolutely not. Because somewhere somebody's waking up and they're not, they're not wanting to make the world a better place. Check your newsfeed. So we're all yoked to something. And the Christian is bound to the one who brings us true freedom. My, bur- my commandments are not burdensome. We have a modern idea, a modern construct of freedom, which is remove the restrictions and then I'm free. That's freedom. Take the restrictions away. It's not freedom. Freedom is having the right restrictions. At the right time, with the right wisdom. For example, when you drive home, you will all drive home, I pray, on the right side of the road. That is a restriction that is there for your flourishing. Now, there are other countries where you drive on the left side of the road, but true freedom is not driving wherever you want. I've been in cities like that. I was in the Philippines in a particular area of Davao where there didn't seem to be any distinguishable traffic laws at all. And not because the cars were driving in whatever lane they chose, which they were, but there was also inexplicably cattle and children and chickens and motorcycles with like two by ten uh, uh, pieces of wood on them with family members sitting like airplane wings on either side. I'd never seen anything like it. And I got to tell you, as a novice race car driver, it was awesome. It was amazing. I was like, are there no laws here? This is incredible. I thought, this is amazing. I said, I think the only police officers I'm seeing are standing on the street corner with whistles going, hey, don't do that. And I was like, well, this is incredible. We're going to down gear right now. But then I realized, actually, it's not amazing. Because as I looked around, I don't think I saw one car that didn't have absolute carnage down both sides of the doors. I think one third of all the vehicles I saw were missing side mirrors. I started to look around. I'm not saying, please, please don't mistake. This is not like the whole city of Davao. That would be incredibly naive and insane for me to talk that way. But I was in a particular area where I was like, I guess they just do what they want in this particular area. Freedom is not life without restriction. It is having the right restriction, the wise restriction. So the question is, whose restriction? For the Christian, the answer is the God who created the cosmos. He is the one that brings true freedom to our life because his commands lead us into true flourishing, true flourishing of the soul. You say, but yeah, but I think there's commands in the scripture that might be quite antiquated. I think there's commands in the scripture around sexuality that don't seem to be congruent with how we understand things in 2022, Kitchener-Waterloo. I understand. Well, here's the thing. We ought to treat everyone who doesn't share our Christian view with love and dignity and respect. They should be treated with kindness and we should be uh, friendly and caring. And uh, those folks should always leave our presence feeling loved and respected. That's the bottom line. But for those of us who have bent our knee to Christ, then we say, well, I must bend my knee to the wisdom of God's laws, even in so much as they are contradictory to human, modern law, because God's law is here for the flourishing of my soul. You know, there's a, a line in Dostoevsky's uh, Brothers Karamazov that always struck me. And full disclosure, I didn't get all the way through that book. Because the glossary of names at the beginning, at the beginning I was like, I should read this. Lots of people want to read this and quoting it. You shouldn't quote things you don't read. So I started reading it, and then halfway through I was like, I'm not reading this. But in Dostoevsky's book he says, if there is no God, then all things are permissible. 
And so this is why, you see, if we dethrone Jesus Christ and we say, well, the commands, maybe they are burdensome. Maybe I won't God, allow the word of God to guide my life. Well, then we end up with, a, well, if there is no God, then all things are permissible. Then the dead, deadly, scary question of who gets to permit what is true and universally true for all of us. Who then, if there is no God in the throne, can have a coronation ceremony and sit in the throne and then mandate law for all the rest of us and say that this is true? This is the dilemma that we face. And they say, well, you know, that's easy. It's the majority view. Well, what if the majority wants to exterminate the minority? Has that ever happened? Well, Paul, I mean, this is a democracy, and the benefit of democracy is that we all get a vote, and we can all be very civil and good, educated, modern people, and, and uh, cultivate human flourishing through our politics. Well, on paper, that's amazing. But in practice, there are limits to our democracy. Democracy works on the basis of keeping power through the majority vote. And the only way to keep the power is to propose things that are accepted by the majority. And therein is the problem, is is the majority view constituting truth? And I would argue, the majority view does not constitute truth. It can, and perhaps in many cases you can point to things and say that it has. But globally, and historically, and universally speaking, the majority view does not constitute truth. Because we can also point to many places in human history where the Enlightenment didn't serve us at all, and the majority voted things that did not constitute human flourishing. That's not difficult to find. So we need a king. We need a king who is wise enough to bring a justice that is indisputable, and a king who is merciful enough to give us grace because there is not one person in here, starting with this preacher, that hasn't contributed to the hurt and the pain in the world by being unloving in some way. And this is why we worship at the throne of Jesus Christ. If you've ever tried to instruct a child by limiting their freedom and they threw a tantrum, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> have you ever done that? Babysitting a kid or maybe you have your own kids or something like that. You restrict their freedom and they throw themselves on the ground. We've done that. The children of God historically have always done that. Have you, res- have you restricted the child's concept of freedom? Yes. But has your imposition of restriction been for their benefit? Yes. Will removing the restrictions and refusing to say no and then parenting them like you're parenting a free-range chicken produce human flourishing? No. If you're following Instagram accounts, they're like, yeah, here's free-range parenting advice on how to just let your child meander through without getting involved and saying no to them. Please unfollow those accounts. That's just some free pastoral advice. I haven't raised three perfect children. I have raised three sinners, actually. Um, but praise God, you know, they love Jesus. And they're my kids, and I love them, and they're okay. So I'm not standing here preaching down to you. But just a thought. Not saying no to your children, not prescribing boundaries and saying, here's your two choices. Here's your two options. You can obey dad and do this, or you can not do what I'm saying, and then this is the consequence. Pick one. If you don't parent, I'm talking about small children who you can't reason with, but if you don't parent them that way, um, you're not setting up well for a world that operates quite a bit on a yes and no, right and wrong scale. It's not the yes and no, right and wrong of the wisdom of God, it's the yes and no, right and wrong of that particular moment in human history. And so, God says, my burdens are not burdensome. Last thing as we prepare to close this morning is that being born of God... Come what may, we will overcome. 
You see, we obey him because we love him and because he has our hearts. It's not some burdensome, knuckle-dragging religious exercise. One time, when Rebecca first moved to Toronto, she was in a place with two other girls, and one of the young women was sadly uh, quite disturbed and quite volatile, very volatile. And I don't mean that in a, I'm not being hyperbolic, it was a clinical, uh, terrible situation. She didn't know this, of course. One night at 11 o'clock p.m., she calls me, and she's like, Dad, can you come get me? The situation is super volatile. Well, I don't need to know, I don't need to tell you that five minutes later, I was on the 401. Okay, well, 15 minutes later, I was on, seven minutes later. Because I love her. So it's not trouble. Was it inconvenient to get in my car at 11 o'clock p.m. and drive to Toronto and, and, and get her out of that situation? Um, yeah. But I wasn't driving on the 401 going, this is so inconvenient. I can't, this, I, the, I, I could be sleeping right now. Because all I was thinking was the object of my love. And this is what the commands look like in the New Testament when we love our king. See, Christian faith is not following rules. We love a king. And because we love a king, we're like, absolutely. There's an old proverb that says, love knows no loads. And that's what this is. And so, born of God, come what may, we will overcome. Verse 4, we will overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Notice it's past tense. Notice the past tense is on purpose. Our faith. As Christians, we live in the already and the not yet. Yes, you look in your news feed. Yes, we look out the window. And things are crazy and terrible all the time. So the overcoming life of the Christian does not look like best life now and there's no problems and... We don't get sick and we don't lose our jobs and we don't have trials and we don't have, you know, it's not what it is at all. What it is, is it is that we are given this victory, this overcoming victory, that even if the world melts, our soul doesn't. Even if everybody's happiness is frivolous and it sinks, our joy doesn't. There is stability. This is the picture of the overcoming of the world. If you had a rental property and somebody moved in and then you found out they were a crime lord, and they didn't pay their rent. You know, you could get them out of there, but not in 24 hours. They'd be squatting on your property. There'd be loss of income. There'd be all these things. They'd be, doing, they'd be wreaking havoc, committing all, such, all sorts of crimes as a crime lord. But you, you can't evict them in 24 hours. It's like, I've got to wait for this whole process. And now, okay, finally we're done. Even though you definitively told them the moment that you found out they were a crime lord, you're out of here. But there's that period of time before they're evicted. You see, that, that's, the, that's the grand narrative of the enemy of our souls being evicted in the resurrection of Christ and everything that he brings. Is that the crime Lord's going to be gone, but in the already and now and, and, and not yet in this time and age in which we live, the day of, that we must endure pain and sorrow and suffering, yeah, the overcoming that we have is that we don't get sucked, our souls and our minds don't get sucked down into the same fear and worry and anxiety that plagues our culture. That phrase, overcomes the world, the word is cosmos, overcomes the ordering of things. In other words, the way things are ordered, don't order you. We've been born of God. We have a new disposition. We have a new value system. We lose our appetite for the ways that the world is ordered. And we have an increasing appetite for how the Spirit of God and the Word of God has ordered us. So we don't live our life, the gratification of self at the cost of the people sitting in the chairs next to us. We don't live with self-gratification and rejection of the ways of God. True fulfillment of self. 
living generously with others in the chairs next to us in worship of God, the reflection of God. This beautiful picture of losing our appetite for sin and gaining an appetite for love. The, over, the overcoming life, it doesn't mean that we as Christians are without sin. It means that we are no longer dominated by it. We recognize it. We hate it. We turn from it. We lose our appetite for it. Verse 5 says that we've overcome because we have belief that Jesus is the Son of God. We have belief that our life is in the hands of God. We have a belief in our Heavenly Father, the one that raised Christ, will carry us. When Isaiah was a little boy, he used to always jump off the stairs into my arms. And one day he jumped off the stairs when I wasn't looking. And I caught him, in the, caught him out of the corner of my eye and I caught him. And I said, whoa, Isaiah, you've got to make sure daddy's watching. You know, in his little mind, he didn't have a concept that his father wouldn't catch him. That's us. And the good news is our father is always watching. This is the faith that's overcome the world. Let's pray.